by the time we finish this evening, you should all be very, very clear about one thing. God is not a soft touch with sin. Now, Ezekiel is one of thousands of Jews who've been taken from Jerusalem by force and placed in exile in Babylon by the order of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, these events that we're considering all took place in the 6th century BC. And Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, is the latest of many nations to rise to dominance in the Middle East during the centuries leading up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the time when the story of Ezekiel is set, just a few decades later, Babylon will weaken. And in the October of 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, will assume dominance in that part of the country and of that region. And just the following year, Cyrus will issue a decree, as recorded in Ezra chapter 1, which will permit the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it. That will then give way to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the return of God's people under them and men like Zerubbabel, and the rebuilding of the walls and the re-establishing of Jerusalem once more. And in terms of Old Testament history, those events draw Old Testament history to a close approximately 400 years before the birth of Christ. And those intervening 400 years, well, the Bible is largely silent about that time. Now, in these early chapters of Ezekiel, he's been in exile for five years. He's 30 years old. And it's 593 BC. Now, as Ezekiel is having this vision, back in Jerusalem, there are still thousands of people from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin living there under the jurisdiction of Babylon. They did have a king in Judah, Jehoiakim. He was removed by Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar wasn't too keen on some of the things that he was trying to do. A new king was appointed, Zedekiah to replace him. You can read about that towards the end of 2 Kings chapter 24. During that period, Jeremiah was God's prophet in Jerusalem. But God's people remained resolutely disobedient and rebellious. They treated Jeremiah shamefully for the most part. And God is using these pagan nations to bring Israel under judgment. Life in Jerusalem would become increasingly unbearable. At one point, they even tried to strike up an alliance with Egypt, because Egypt saw Babylon as a threat as well. Uh, That never really got off the ground. Eventually, in the year 589 BC, Zedekiah would lead Jerusalem in a rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. Well, as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, that was the last straw And his response was to besiege Jerusalem for two years. During that time, conditions in Jerusalem, with all their supplies cut off, conditions within the city walls became unbearable and atrocious. And the book of Kings closed with that event in 2 Kings 25. 
Some of the details of the horrific things inside Jerusalem are described in Jeremiah chapter 19. They're spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 5. We're told that people in Jerusalem resorted to cannibalism in order to survive. So desperate were they. After two years, the Babylonians built ramparts against the walls of Jerusalem and the beleaguered and emaciated inhabitants were no contest whatsoever for Nebuchadnezzar's army. Jerusalem was destroyed. Those who were not killed and could make the journey were also taken into exile in Babylon in 586 BC. Ezekiel's writing in chapter 4 and 593. And Zedekiah's rebellion and the start of that siege is still four years away. Hasn't happened yet. And God is going to speak through Ezekiel by means of a series of signs, many of which reflect that which will happen in Jerusalem. And the reason for it is made very, very clear. It really is quite harrowing, probably, for those who are in exile, who... If any of them have an understanding of what these things are talking about that's happening to their friends and relatives back home and the things they're about to suffer 500 miles away with them unable to do anything to help, well, it must have been quite harrowing for any in Babylon who realised what was being spoken about. And all of these things are lessons about the seriousness of sin. And they show us that God cannot and will not sit idly by as if sin is of no consequence. Well, let's have a look at some of the things in these two chapters. Let's begin, first of all, with the clay tablet at the beginning of chapter 4. Ezekiel turns artist as God instructs him to produce an image on a tablet of clay probably about the size of this desktop here, maybe. And on it, he was to draw or construct an image of Jerusalem under siege in an echo of what will happen in a few years' time. And you see there some of the details that he's told to put into that image on the tablet of clay. And then this iron plate is to put in place. It represents a barrier between Ezekiel and the city that are depicted on the clay and representing God himself turning his face away from his people. Back in Jerusalem, the warnings and the pleadings of Jeremiah are being ignored. Disobedience and rebellion against God continues. Repentance is nowhere to be found. The covenant that God has placed these people in, they are breaking and is broken. And when people behave like that, and when people remain in that condition, even when confronted with the reality of the situation through God's spokesmen, God turns his face away from them. And they are to blame. And as a result, God gives them over to their sin and he brings his judgment against them his own people who've turned their backs on him the message of the bible 
one of the messages of the Bible is of a God whose anger burns hot against sinners as long as they remain in their sin. Now it's important to know that when we read of these things in the Bible about God, on the one hand his anger against sin and on the other this God who is loving and gracious and kind, it's, it's not that God is kind of bipolar, swinging from one to the other, left to right. And you might ask a very valid question, but what of his love and of his compassion and of his mercy and of his grace? Where's that gone in passages like this? That's a good question. Actually has an easy answer. God's love and compassion and mercy and grace are still there in abundance. And if the people will turn in repentance, and if they will turn to God in faith, they will know and experience God's love and compassion and mercy and grace in abundance. But they remain resolutely turned against him. And so they have cut themselves off from God's mercy and grace. And his judgment and anger comes upon them. You see, at one and the same time, God's wrath pours out against the ungodly who harden their hearts and his love flows like a mighty river towards those who will fall at his feet in confession of their sin and plead his mercy and grace. Which are you this evening? There is such compassion, such mercy, such grace in the heart of God for those who will turn to him, for those who will come repentant, confessing their sin, and pleading the merits of Christ. But while you remain against him, God remains against you. The second image in that fourth chapter is of a, what we might call a bed of woe. Verses four to eight. Seems a little strange to us, perhaps. Much of this seems a little strange. Even stranger is going to follow. Ezekiel is to lie down on his left side for 390 days. Uh, that's more than a year. Then when the 390 days are complete, he's to switch to his right side for a further 40 days. He's to be bound so that he cannot move and he's to prophesy against Jerusalem. Well, much has been said about these numbers of days. I think really it's fairly straightforward the total 430 days equates to the 430 years that the Israelites were held in bondage in Egypt. And the 40 years is the same as the 40 years that they spent wandering in the wilderness. And both of those things were acts of God's judgment against his people because of their disobedience. And note that verse 7 tells us that these 430 days run concurrently with the image of the siege. 
So this actually is all one thing, but it's we're, we're brought the individual pictures, but it's all one thing happening at the same time. The message is this, you see, just as Israel came under bondage in Egypt all those years ago, they're in bondage once more. And just as they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering, during which many lost their lives, God is again moving in judgment against his people. Now, I'd be in danger this evening of losing you in a fog of references if I tried to go into a lot more detail on this. There's ample evidence in the Old Testament of where this imagery of their 430 years in exile in Egypt reappears again in the, in the text of the Bible as a reminder of what happens when they break covenant with God. In other words, they say, remember Egypt. It's happening again. Not necessarily for a literal 430 years, but the same principle is in operation again because of how you've behaved. This is Egypt all over again. Have you learned nothing? And the reason? Well, in this image of Ezekiel lying down, he's said to be bearing their iniquity. It's because of their sin. It's because of their sin. That's what lies behind these images. And the thought of the horrors of the Egyptian captivity is intended to convey to God's people just how desperate and severe their position is right now. You're in that same place again. And that's what you deserve right now. And many will fall by the wayside just as they did in the past because you remain stubbornly turned against me. But of course, the wilderness wanderings also do bring a glimmer of hope, don't they? Because it did come to an end. And whilst there were very many who lost their lives in the wilderness and who would never see the promised land, the wilderness for others was a place where God demonstrated his great forbearance and faithfulness. And he demonstrated his care and his provision. And he kept and preserved a remnant through the wilderness who would reach the promised land. And so in the midst of such awful judgment, there is also a glimmer of hope. And then there's the image of the defiled bread from verse 9 onwards. What we have brought to our sight here is pretty disgusting. It's very graphic language. Meager, really meager, prison-like prison -like rations, barely enough to sustain life, just enough to eat, just enough to drink to sustain you and keep you alive. Bread, if you're wondering what human waste is referring to, bread cooked over a fire of burning human excrement. That is what it means. That is what it says. It is meant to be revolting. It's supposed to make you scrunch up your face in disgust. And as Ezekiel's protest, that was replaced by animal dung. A little better, perhaps, but for most of you, not much. It's pretty revolting. It's supposed to be. 
This is the stench of sin in the nostrils of God, you see. It's a representation of their spiritual state, weighed down by unforgiven sin and under the chastisement of God. What wretches they are in their sin before a holy God. What degradation they have sunk to. What shameful humiliation they have brought upon themselves because of their sinfulness. You might be wondering how Ezekiel can be doing all of these things that are are depicted in these signs. Well, the best answer is that these signs are not, again, like the eating of the scroll mentioned earlier. These are not literal things that Ezekiel is being asked to do by God, but these are part of this continuation of the vision that God is giving him as signs for understanding. If these things are supposed to be literal things, how is he supposed to make the bread in verse 9 whilst still bound so that he cannot move while he's lying on his side? It's all part of the vision that God is giving him. Do you see and understand, Ezekiel, the state that you are in? And what you need to make the people aware of? Such is the nature of sin in the eyes of a holy God. And then there's the sharp sword at the beginning of chapter 5. A sharp sword being used like a barber's razor and his head and beard being shaved. It's a picture of abject humiliation. It's imagery of great judgment that's come against Israel. People, will, people are imi- pictured as dying of starvation in Jerusalem. Some dying by the sword as the Babylonian forces move in and the rest of the people being separated and scattered. You see that in, from verse 5 onwards in chapter 5. This is Jerusalem. I've set her in the midst of the nations. She's rebelled against my judgments. Israel, God's people, they're more wicked than the pagan nations all around them. And so the judgments coming against them are more severe. I'm against you, verse 8. I will execute judgments in in your midst in the sight of the nations. Horrific things. Now we could attempt to look at all of these individual verses in these chapters as we go through. We could try and do it in great detail. But I'd be in great danger of turning a sermon for a church congregation into a lecture that's more suitable for a seminary. So I'm not going to worry about that. If you're interested in these things and you'd like to delve deeper into some of these images and pictures, you can Come and see me at the end and I can recommend a few good books that you can read and delve into these in a bit more detail. Or have a word with Keith. He'll probably recommend the same books too. The main lesson. The main lesson. What's being said here? What's the main point that these scriptures are getting across to us in 2019, two and a half thousand years later? Israel have been in a position of great spiritual privilege. And so their judgment is going to be even more severe. The deeper the sin, the deeper the judgment. The harder the heart grows despite knowledge of the truth, 
the more severe the penalty. God's judgment against his own people will even shock the pagan nations, verse 15. As God moves in anger, certain words we don't often anticipate being used about God, do we? God moving in anger and in fury, for that's the word of the scripture, against them. And yet, you know, throughout this Old Testament story, if God's people had only turned in heartfelt repentance from their sin, if they had returned to the Lord their God in faith, they would have known again God's love and grace and mercy. Jesus said of his own people during his earthly ministry that because they had been exposed literally to the light of the world but rejected his gospel invitation and chosen to remain in darkness, they would face a greater judgment than even the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. That isn't just rhetoric. He meant it. He meant it. You've had all of these privileges and still you reject me. Still you remain in your sin. And some people might ask, but isn't all of this at odds with the New Testament's message of mercy and grace? Not at all. Not at all. You see, the light of the gospel burns even brighter when we understand just how dark is the darkness in which that light shines. Take a light bulb outdoors in the middle of the midday sun and turn it on. You hardly even notice it. Take a tiny, tiny light bulb in a place that is pitch black and turn it on. And you can see it for miles. Because the darker the darkness, the greater is the light. The depth of the love that God demonstrates in the death of Christ grows only deeper for us when we realize just how severe is the anger of God that Christ took on our behalf. Look at the way God is dealing with Israel in the Old Testament. Look at the language that is used about God's fury against his people. That's the anger that was poured out on Christ. And as we realize just how deep is our sin, then we begin to recognize just how deep is the love of God that he would deal with our sin in the person of his own son. Did you notice a brief reference to a theme that is scattered all through the Old Testament and which comes to its fulfillment in the new, in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's in chapter 4, verse 5, and it's mentioned once or twice in the following few verses. Of Ezekiel, you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. 
In the vision, God's judgment falls on Ezekiel as their representative. Now, there's no sense here that Ezekiel is atoning for their sins. It's merely a picture to explain the judgment that they're under. But one is coming who is more than just a picture and who would indeed atone for their sins, for all the sins of God's people. There is one coming who truly will and fully will bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And all of that wrath and anger that we see in God will all fall on Christ. Isn't that remarkable? There is the love and compassion of God. There is the mercy and grace of God. It's coming in the Old Testament. It's coming. It's coming. And then John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus did not come into the world to receive a slap on the wrist because we've just been a little bit naughty. Did he? Jesus came into the world to be rejected by men and to be spat upon and to be stripped naked and to be beaten and then to die one of the cruelest and most shocking and humiliating forms of execution that men have ever devised. Why? Because that is the severity of punishment that sin deserves. Because that is how severe sin is in the eyes of a holy God. And Christ went to Calvary for you to pay it in full. There is the love of God demonstrated so fully and so completely. And in this congregation this evening, there are two groups of people. Against one group, the anger of God burns hot against you as you persist in your sin with an unrepentant heart. And for as long as you stay like that, especially when you sat under the sound of the gospel and continue to reject Christ, God's anger against your sin and against you will grow only hotter and hotter and hotter. And yet there are others right now who are basking in God's love and mercy and grace. Which are you? There's a great difference between those two groups. Those who remain turned away from God deserve his anger and condemnation whilst those who've received his mercy and forgiveness haven't deserved any of it. Have you? I, I didn't. God's invitation still goes out. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Turn and return to God in confession of your sins. Christ still is held out as the hope for mankind the one who died in the place of sinners, bearing God's wrath. Come to him today. 
You just need to come as the sinner you are, confessing your sin, turning away from it, and taking hold of Christ as Saviour and Lord. Do it today. Enter into his love. Enter into his grace. Enter into his mercy and compassion. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. But reject God's salvation and reject God's saviour. And you put yourself and keep yourself in the place where Israel are in Ezekiel's vision. You can leave this place this evening in Christ with everything changed. And you'll forever be held in the everlasting arms of God who will love you and cherish you as his child. As one upon whom he has lavished in abundance his mercy and grace. Your sins will cost you dearly, but Christ has loved you dearly and paid the penalty in full so that his salvation is offered freely.